Good morning, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert, and we have a really exciting episode today. We're going to be talking about the destruction of the lamps. That's this is right. This big one. The turning also, point of season one. That's right. And it's also one of the best um, uh, um, songs on um, Blind Guardian's Nightfall in Middle-earth. <laughs> well. Which, of course, we need to get rights to. So somebody write that down. That's yes. true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing like some <laughs> European heavy metal to like serve as our primary soundtrack, I'd say. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Know, yes. In fact, I bet they'd be I bet they'd be on board for composing some new stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, Ooh. I their uh their their I their Curse of Fanor song I, is my favorite of their songs. I absolutely love the Curse of Fanor song that they've done. Uh yep. but uh yeah, yeah. No, they I mean that 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 whole album actually Ooh, so I find to bring very that in later too. Yeah. 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 All right, somebody contact their agent. <laughs> exactly. Get the get the intern in here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, so today our first the first thing we want to do as we usually do we are um, um, we're going back to the last time we want to sort of finish up some uh, some loose ends we, we wanted to give people a, an opportunity to kind of respond further to some of the things that we talked about go back and address some of the responses from people and and kind of think a little bit more through stuff and in particular this week since Trish was not able to be here last week which as Dave and I were lamenting last time was a, a, a singularly unfortunate time for us to be without Trish's input um, I wanted to give her a chance to respond especially to you know some of the sort of uh, Stuff that we were talking about last week about archetype and gender, and then sort of thinking specifically about some of the like Nessa damsel in distress stuff. So, Trish, I wanted to make sure to give you a a, a full opportunity to re- to respond to that stuff. Yeah, well, I actually I have a couple of things to respond to. I mean, I'm even kind of making my notes a little in a different order here. Um, yeah, it was great because I actually did listen in. Um, I was driving. So uh, I was actually, I told Corey, I was actually talking to everybody at, while I was driving <laughs> during the episode. <laughs> um, first of all, I got to say, you know, one of the things that really hit me hard when we were talking about this last week is the fact that, you know, filling in where there is no canon has given me a new empathy for adaptation. And, and you know, I got to say for Jackson's team in particular, it, because you know, we have to make choices, and we have there. You know, it's like there's a backstory. It's like, well, we come up, and I'll illustrate that in a, just a second. But um, you know, it's kind of like, you, I mean, I got down to a certain point in my thinking, and it's like, well, we should do X Y. You know, there's a X Y Z would be the solution. But if we do that solution, that means we have to actually set it up like three episodes ago. You know, so because you can't just all of a sudden pop this new idea into place, and it, it's like, oh my goodness, and, and we're just skimming the surface. I'm like. I now understand why, you know, script teams on any kind of adaptation or, or, you know, any story, really, I mean, any movie has like 13-hour days routinely, you know, when they work through this stuff. So that was one thing. Um, Now, back to the light, actually. We didn't want to do the damsel in distress thing, but the light thing, you know, we were talking about how the light would be handled pre-lamp. So my idea, although (laughs) this could be really hokey on screen, but I came up with the idea, in addition to the gloaming idea that, that... you know, we teed up the idea of it being sort of this pre, you know, pre-dawn, pre, you know, dusk, dusky kind of light, ambient light, is pre-lamps. The Valar themselves could 
emit light, which which would you know explain the thing like I don't see a problem. I can see perfectly fine. Why would <laughs> why would we need light? You know, I mean, I see everything just fine. And you know, because and this came up when Corey was talking about the thing about he just can't imagine them creating Arda in total darkness, which kind of tickled me. And then I came up with this idea. And then the idea was, and when they make the lamp, they then you know shed the light, shed their light into the lamp. So then they become lightless, and the lamps become light. Now. I gotta say, part of me says, "Oh my God, that would just look so hokey on screen." But I thought I'd throw it out there. You know, I don't know that I'm necessarily married to the idea myself, but you know. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly, I would say, no matter what, I would think that the lighting should be observably different at, like, within Almarin, where the Valar are gathered, and outside of Almarin. Oh, I mean, got it. So yeah. it should be dimmer right. out there, so that at the very least, there is this sense of like where the Valar is. There is light, even if it's not. There's and you're right. I mean, yeah. one of the difficulties is the visual there. Like that kind right. of thing, like the idea of the, the, the idea of the Valar themselves being luminous is an idea that I could imagine working really well in a print story. But right. When you would actually try to depict it, I mean, like, you How know. How would you do that? Yeah. Right. I mean, basically there's like, you could make them look like dead Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? <laughs> um, that you know, that's that's not. Or, or you could have light just coming out of their eyes. You know, <laughs> right, exactly. Which is <laughs> or their which, fingertips. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. It would be it would be it would yeah, be really difficult to to do problem. that. Yeah. But but for them to be kind of to for them to be kind of surrounded by light, not like not that we should see it on screen actually being emitted by their persons, but right. um, you know, but that where they are. You know, light is. Um, so there's a certain like aura of visibility of visibility around them, and say, we can possibly know, create that effect with a sort of a wide shot. That is, if you know, when there's a time that we see one or more of the Valar out, like in the wilds, you know, out in the countryside. Mm-hmm. Um, if we showed them from a distance, we could show a um, ah. a a you know, like a, a light patch where they are right. you know sort of shining right. out in the you know make really kind of making the the uh the the area around them look darker essentially right um right right so something like that i mean i could not interesting now and the other thing is if, if they you know if, if they if they contribute that to the lambs that kind of makes it interesting because of melkor's uh proprietariness about the lamps you know puts that even more into into contrast in the sense yeah that is really interesting i mean the idea of exactly where the light in the lamps comes from um right it it, it, it yeah I, I that's my favorite element of this suggestion because if if we can see if like all of the valar are essentially coming together um you know and like maybe they all like you know lay their hands on the, on the, on the crystals or, you know, in some sense we see light, uh, you know, all of them contributing to the luminous, the luminance of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, of the lamps. That really, I think does, well, no pun intended, shine a spotlight on the, the, the dynamics, right? Like Melkor's claim to ownership and authority over them. You know, basically the way that Melkor, uh, you know, they obviously see these things as, you know, 
reflecting the community, coming from the community, and he sees them as 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 his. That he has you know sort of ownership and lordship over them. He makes the crystals. Uh, you know, maybe you know he with uh, sort of Sauron as his assistant make the crystals, and it stores the light, and he contributes a lot of the light. And so he, again, he feels like that. You know, these are sort of his. He has at the least mastery, at best ownership over them, and that makes the rest of the Valar really kind of uncomfortable that he seems to... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, the, the idea of, the, of, of, of each of them contributing light to that, I think really places, in my mind, a really interesting emphasis on that kind right. of tension, right. which I think we need to be building. <clears throat> you know, it hasn't broken through. The main emphasis on the lamp subplot of episode 5 is triumph, right? You know, the glory and the triumph of... Uh, of the creation of the lamps and light spreading around the world. And, you know, then this coincides with the rescue of, 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 you know, with like the defeat of Ungoliant, right? As Ungoliant flees, the lamps are lit and, you know, light shines out and flowers bloom and trees burst into leaf and, you know, all this kind of stuff happens. So, you know, great glory and splendor. Um, but we can, we, we, sh- we need to make sure that we're sowing the seeds in, you know, sort of conversations leading up to it that Melkor right. and the rest of the Valar are really just not on the same page when it comes to, when it, when it, when it, when it comes to the status of the lamps and their relationship with the lamps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, that was my idea as far as the light's concerned. Now, moving on to the damsel in distress thing and the sort of archetype stereotype thing. Yeah, yeah. A couple things here. Um, first of all, before even getting into that, I do want to acknowledge, and I think we may have mentioned this last week, I mean, I don't know how to solve the issue of the truth is, I mean, as far as the Valar are concerned, they, she could just disembody. I mean, she could just evaporate right. yeah, herself yeah, right? yeah, and just yeah. slid away. So I don't know how to do that unless we do some unless we decide early on to make some kind of change to Tolkien's story to well, make see, it though, when in they're that, bound we do that, they don't do right. that. Yeah, I mean in that we, we do that like we do you know, like we talked about before where essentially, again their physical forms serve as essentially an outward representation. I mean, what we do see, what Tolkien does say about their bodies is that the, their outward forms are like the outward manifestation of their internal... St- like, it's it's um, just as... And, and he says it, of course, specifically about gender. You know, that some of them are bodied forth as, as males and some as females, but their gender is not determined by that, but rather it's an expression of that difference of temper that they had from their beginning. Um, and so again, the point that he makes is he, he compares the, cl- the, the bodies of the Valar to clothes that people with bodies put on, right? Um, right. So anyway, the idea is that it, it's, my idea for how we handle this is that it's, it's, it's essentially an extension of that same principle where um, we just say – so so like with Nessa and Nessa's captivity, the idea that Nessa could be physically captured, like, yes, it's not just about mere physical force being applied to her. Um, the capture of Nessa by Ungoliant would be – she would be being placed in a kind of spiritual bondage. But that's being visually represented on both sides by the physical interaction between them. So it's it, it needs to be kind of understood that uh, Ungoliant is, in fact, restraining 
you know, she is in fact constraining Nessa. Um, but, but that's not a purely physical thing. And, you know, and so I, I, I'm, I don't know that we need to draw a whole lot of attention to this. Okay. You know, I don't think we have I mean, to explain you know, it laboriously. Made but... it, it. it may become our eagle to the eagles to Mountain Doom question. You know, thing that you know, it's like why wouldn't she? But you know, I mean, there are going to be those those geeks that, that ask that question. Yeah, but I mean, I, if we think I, it's a big I mean, enough can... issue, we could always have a you know a three minute exchange on this between Estelle and Elrond, right? Right. Well, and actually, that sort of segues into my next idea with this, which was kind of covers the same way, you know, talking about, um, you know, the, that we, we talked last week about the, their Valar, you know, and regardless right. of whether they take female form or male form, their Valar. So, you know, why would she need Tulkas to come save her? And I kind of made some notes up because I had stopped driving at that point and I was typing in the question thing. My thing, my idea there is, and I think this is easily done, and I think this could, this could also dovetail with what we were just talking about, is that you know, when they come to Arda, or even maybe even before, I mean, there's tendencies even before perhaps, but when they come to Arda, they make choices. Right. They make choices of what their strengths, what are they going to focus on? What are they going to, you know, what are they, what's their part of the creation going to, going to, going to, you know, really spotlight? And in making those choices, there are trade-offs that, you know, the choices that they make mean that there are other choices now that are negated. So in, if Nessa, you know, has chosen to, you know, go a direction where physical prowess isn't, you know, physical prowess is something that she doesn't have, but it's because of her choice. There was a trade-off right, in her choice. Right, right. And, you know, Tolkien doesn't really say much about that, but I think this is this is the kind of thing that I was talking about earlier when I said this is the thing, where I was like, oh gosh, you know, we can't just kind of like introduce that in this episode. That needs to have been handled. You know, we need to actually say that. Again, maybe in a small exchange, you know, early on in the in the series where Elrond says, when they come to, you know, they came to Arda, they made choices, and, you know, they were in their bodies, and, you know, that whole thing could just be handled in a, a very short thing. But that would explain, then, why Nessa would need, you know, someone with more physical prowess or whatever prowess is needed to come to her aid. So that's what I think, because then you, then you don't get into the whole gender thing, and it's, it's really not a, you know, it, it kind of steps a little... It makes more distance from the damsel in distress trope um, if we do it that way. By the way, another thing that I realized, and I don't think there's a way around this, is I was thinking about this this morning. It's so hard to talk about the Valar in, in the really authentic way because we're human. Right. Like I was thinking about it, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but the whole love thing, you know, is is the, is our concept of love really applicable to the Valar? I mean, I don't, This is that's a big topic maybe that's something for a paper but you know i mean it's 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 a toughie which yes. brings me to my next point because i know you're going to want to say something about this so let me go to my next point because that actually <laughs> that's and then i'm going to like stop so the angolian nessa thing you know one of the things that i thought of is <clears throat> hell hath no fury like a spider scorned <laughs> angolian could actually want to pair with nessa Mm-hmm. You know, that may be her choice. Now, this is very 21st century trophy, right? It's very cool to have sort of same gender relationships go on. So, you know, we'd be like very cool in that regard. But but that aside, I mean, that's that certainly is conceivable, you know. And there's something about Nessa that Ungolian is drawn to and that she wants to pair with her. And, Nessa ba- and so she finds a way to, you know, draw Nessa aside, abduct if you want to call it that, you know, separate her from the rest of the Valor and make her pitch to Nessa who then rejects her, which infuriates Angolian so much that she turns into a spider. 
Right. I mean, I'm saying that lightly, but I mean, that could be sort of how things, that could be her motive, you know, that could be how that goes, that she is so enraged or, 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 or whatever from the uh, rejection. Um, so anyway, stuff like that, I mean, I, I, so that's, those are some of my thoughts, but that, those last two points really do kind of come into this sort of romantic sexual relationship with thing that I know you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so no, I absolutely. I mean, it, it is it is a big picture question. And in my mind, it's very similar to the one about physical vulnerability, basically. Um, I, I do think that it is true that it's hard. We cannot be too simplistic in projecting onto the Valar the same kind of emotions and right. the same kind of like relationship dynamics uh, and sort of sexual desire that we as mortals feel. Um, and it is one of the, f one of the fine lines. I think it was, um, I think it was, it was uh, Hakan who was talking about this as sort of a general point on our discussion boards this week when he was sort of talking about the, the general desire to make sure that we have a distinction. Like, there's this fine line we have to walk, right? On the one hand, if the Valar seem too alien and too distant from human feelings and, and human motivations, it's going to be really difficult for people to get into it. I mean, they're going to seem like robots, right? We, we can't have them be too, so alien that the story itself becomes alien and weird and, and, uh, and not really compelling to people. But at the same time, it would be good to preserve an element. I mean, these are not humans, right? And they're not even elves. Um, and they're, you know, so having there be some kind of reminders, essentially, that these are not humans that we're dealing with, I think um, might actually be sort of profitable but um but thinking specifically about the so so bringing that now specifically to the, like the sexual desire slash marriage question on the one hand there is clearly something that is at the very least metaphorically similar to sexual relationships among the valar right um in in that they they're married they get married to each other so the sort of the pairing off of many but not all of the valar does show that there is something there is something among them there, there is something you know something in in sort of the connection between two of the valar but you know so the, the partnership between the two of them which is at least in some ways like a you know a romantic relationship between uh between two mortals but that doesn't have to be the same thing. And like I said, I kind of think of it as very similar to the physical vulnerability question. You know, when I was talking last time about understanding this, um, understanding the physical threat, the physical uh, uh, damage, um, or the, you know, the physical danger that the Valar and, and, and Maiar can be placed in, understanding that as in some way essentially metaphorical that it's really it's you know as you know trish as you were saying their bodies themselves are a manifestation of their own moral and spiritual choices right and and their own like identity you know who they are what their role in the song is um what their nature is these things are bodied forth in the bodies that they choose, which also means like the abilities that they have. Tolkas is not just 
He's not. He is physically stronger. His 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 physical body, his physical vessel, is more physically powerful than any other of the Valar. That doesn't mean he's greater than all the other Valar at all. It just means that physical strength is his thing. Um, and so, therefore, since uh, since the the that element of the world is who he is and what he does. His his physical vessel uh, reflects that. That's why we're contemplating casting him as a former WWE wrestler because that seems a fitting me- physical manifestation of who, of who and what Tolkien is. Um, so the idea of them being in danger, they can be in danger. We we know that they are that they can be in danger, that they can fall, they can make wrong choices. Who they are can change. That's what we see happening to Melkor over time. It's what we see happening to Sauron over time. It's what we see almost happening to Aule, right? And what what could have happened to Aule? It's what we see happening to Ase. It's what we see happening to Saruman. You know, it, it's it's you can change. They can change um, for the worst. They can be they. Can become, you know, sick, injured, destroyed. Um, it's not. It doesn't work the same way, obviously. But but that those things, those dangers that they are that they get into, can be, you know, manifested in this sort of metaphorical sense by their physical by what happens to their physical forms. I think the same is true of the romantic slash sexual side that the connections between two, the, the, the attraction between Aule and Yavanna at the end of the day, this is not a question of like, you know, Oh gosh, I think she's real cute. I wonder if she'll date me. Right. That's not what's going on in Aule's mind. Right. That's not what they're, <laughs> that's not where it starts with them. Right. Because it's not about the bodies. Just like the danger isn't about the bodies. This isn't about the bodies. Um, it's about who they are. Right. There is something with, there is a, there is a kind of, there is a kind of resonance. There is a kind of connection. The two of them fit together. You know, they are, they are, uh, they, are from, they're derived from like complementary portions of the mind of Iluvatar. And so they fit together, you know, Varda and Manwe fit together. And so they pair up, but that can, that can still be demonstrated, um, on the physical level, just as the danger can, you know, just as the sort of the, the you know, the, the, the fall and, and the, the, the real risks that they face can also be manifested on the physical level as part of our story. And we can really draw attention to that stuff. So the idea that, you know, so the two things that we are, that, that we're sort of discussing and contemplating, uh, in this episode, I think it, it can very much be manifested in both ways. Ungoliant is going to, the whole premise, I mean, remember I was comparing it last time to the rape of Persephone, right? To, you know, to Hades' capture of Persephone or Proserpina, depending on whether you're using the Greek or the Latin form. Um, and, and that, that's, that is a story of sexual desire, right? But even within that story, that the sexual desire of Hades for Persephone is fairly clearly metaphorical as well um but but whatever you know it 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 works both ways and that's perfectly fine so yeah uh, there's no way that there's no reason that ungoliant would capture nessa unless she desires her in some sense so why shouldn't we manifest that as 
uh, as sort of like, again, we, we, we body that forth within our story as sexual desire. We can't simplify it, right? It's not just like, gosh, I have a crush on you. Um, th- there's more to, but she, th- there's something in Nessa that she desires. Um, there's something I think in the quality of Ungoliant's desire that is, she's Ungoliant, right? She is, she's, not a nice person. We see Ungoliant's desire that the, the the desire of Ungoliant is associated. Tolkien uses the word lust of Ungoliant, um, you know. But her, but his lust, but her lust was not his lust. Remember in the in the uh, uh, the talking about Melkor and Ungoliant during the darkening. Um, she has desire. She desires light, but her her desire is more purely acquisitive than Melkor's. Right, it's like Melkor's, but it's it's more simply and purely. She wants to subsume, right? She wants everything to come unto her and to and to. She wants to swell her 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 belly and her own strength um, with the beauty that she consumes. Um, so that is to say, that what I'm saying is, I think we can represent that as essentially her having a desire for Nessa. I think it needs to be a really creepy desire um, because Ungoliant's desire is not a a sort of a right. clean desire in that way. Well, and, and and it would make sense. I mean, you, you would totally get why Nessa would reject her in that. Yeah. Way. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Get it. By the way, I had another thought about this, and, which and is not just because she's a giant spider, which <laughs> is, which is <laughs> <Yes>. plenty nuts. <laughs> right. But I had another thought about this. Which is later on down the line, when Melkor teams up with Ungoliant, they have this being spurned thing in common. Right. Where Melkor says to her, she, you know, I know, you know, we both have, we're not appreciated by the ones we chose or something like, you know, so that could come in later, which I thought could be an interesting, you know, commonality between them besides the whole stuff. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, an an excellent, uh, you know, opportunity for comical cartoons about, you know, Melkor and Ungoliant, you know, in the Lonely Hearts Club, they're getting together (laughs) and singing the blues over a, over a double scotch, you know. You got dumped too, yeah. You want to do something about it? Um, we gotta get our buddy Monica on that. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, but but yeah. So no, I mean, I, I think that that's you know, and because both of them, I mean, it's one of the things that I think fundamentally is 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 an excellent manifestation. I mean, it's one of the things that like evil things have in common is that their their desires are like positive desires, right? They're like good desires. They're just selfish desires, right? They're, they're more, they're more turned inward towards self. Um, and they're, they're, you know, so the diff, you know, we can even have sort of the contrast between Tolkis's desire for Nessa and Ungoliant's desire for Nessa. And the difference is the one seeing and valuing her for who she is and the other desiring to acquire her and indeed ultimately to subsume her. Um, you know, Cheryl actually makes a really good point. The other point we could make about with Nessa and 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 maybe you know what draws Ungoliant to her is Nessa is the light version of Ungoliant, and that also sets the stage for the devouring of light thing. You know that that's what Ungoliant is drawn to. Hmm. Also, Karita, I must say, made a lovely. You know, she says, and Melkor in Ungoliant, he says, at least we have each other. She shoots him a venomous look. At I do. Um, um, people are pointing out that we are we are we are we are 
once again treading on um, treacherous ground because there is sort of a there is a the danger is if this is done um, um, sort of awkwardly if this is not done with a with a careful hand yes. what we end up doing is creating a lesbian character and then making that character look evil by virtue of her lesbian nature which would not be but I think that's why I think two things one if Game of Thrones has taught us anything, it's that um, courting controversy only helps with ratings. And, <laughs> and two, um, <laughs> and two, I think Let's that's why we. Here, people. And two, I think that's why we don't make it. It's not overtly sexual, right? Like right. it's much more about, you know, like it's much more getting to the core, the core themes of these stories, which are that possession. Right. Um, possession of something, particularly against against possession of someone against their will, and possessing things to the you know to the point that um, that you exclude other people from having them and sharing in them is bad, and it doesn't matter what form that takes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, I yeah, I would like to see us shy away from making it sort of an ooh, you know, sexual thing, and have it be very matter of fact, actually. That if, that this make would make sense that Ungoliant would be drawn to Nessa because yeah. of her qualities or whatever. I mean, I I I do I do kind of like the idea of having when we manifest Ungoliant in 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 you know in female form in in in, in woman in non spider form right, um, and her interactions with Nessa it, it seems to me to kind of fit for there to be a sort of really creepy sexual vibe in her interactions with Nessa um because again what we're what we're demonstrating is like re- like i mean it's the maximally creepy form of desire right you know to say like i just like i want to sum- subsume you entirely into myself i mean you know so she's right um you know, oh, it's like crazy. Be, it's like sexual, the, but crazy stalker vibe primarily. She'd be the original sexual predator, right? Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, in a much more literal than usual sense. In a yes. literal sense. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think I I think that would be that would be that would be fine. Um, but there should be. She Ungoliant, that is, um, and a couple of people have have talked about like this. Oh wait, I, I want to quickly. Marie Prosser said or, said so. Ungoliant is Aeol, the Dark Elf. Yes, or rather, Marie. What I would say is she prefigured. So when we see Aeol laying his snares for Arathel later on, it should recall this scene. We'll Absolutely. do the Tolkien I, I typology thing. Yeah. yeah, 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 Marie. Perfect, yeah. Marie. Because this occurred to me last week, and in fact, that's actually something I think we could be thinking about. Is is when we talk about archetypes, mm-hmm. they're Middle Earth archetypes or yes. stereotypes. It this should absolutely echo. A, you know, echo back, and and there are going to be other situations like that too, where we, you know, we can set up sort of the archetype with the Valar that we then see played out later, you know, with elves and men and etc. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that would be that that would be really cool. So, but but anyway, responding to some of the other questions that people or the other uh, points that people are making, I do think that we should make sure to make Ungoliant desirable, not just physically attractive um you know and like you know 
like Morticia Adams. Yeah, or something it looks like, like Morticia that. Adams. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, but basically, desirable Tanessa. I mean, there should be there should be actual temptation. This should not just be like a, I'm going to capture yes. you and torture you because I'm evil and you're going to be trying to get away the whole time. This should be a this should be a there should be a real possibility here. You know, there should be right. some attraction for her to turn away from the light. I mean, because well, really, what we're seeing was... here is the spotlight on that. Right. This is the first time we're seeing that issue we're bringing in evil for the first you know sort of explicit evil for the first time we're showing the temptation to fall which is also going on at the same time with sauron and and with the balrogs and all that stuff right and so you know nessa becomes our kind of prototype she chooses not to fall right she 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 rejects her in the end but well i do agree with that that sorry go ahead i know you go ahead I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make up for last week. Can you tell? <laughs> well, the, the thing, and I do, I do agree with that because I do, and I, I remember I said this last week to you guys was there, there should be like a, a very engaged conversation or, you know, interaction between Ungolian and Nessa that brings up the temptation where Nessa really is tempted, where she really is thinking about it, and then she chooses not to, which sends Ungolian over the edge. The only the only thing about, and I do agree that that should happen, but the only thing about that then, doesn't that kind of like make the, the creepy sexual desire thing kind of like, why would Nessa be tempted if there's been this creepy sexual desire this whole time? Wouldn't that be a turnoff from the beginning? I don't know. We'd have to be kind of nuanced about all that stuff. Yeah, we would. I mean, it, it could just be that the, the sort of the creepiness of it is... It could start off looking like more of a, a simple, like, sort of appeal for partnership. Like, you know, I think ah. we have a lot in common and we should work together and we can actually and make them have a lot in common. But Nessa doesn't kind of thing? Or right, exactly. And, 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 yeah. and it becomes more clear to her. The, 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 the real creepiness only emerges, you know, as the thing goes on. In that conversation, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then okay. it, it ends with her rejecting Ungoliant. And ungoliant wigging out and turning into a spider and saying, "Then okay, then I'll just eat you now." And that's, that'll, that'll be, just be like good. Maleficent in uh, in the in the cartoon version of Sleeping Beauty, which turns into a dragon. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, <laughs> just like that. Just uh, like that. Just like that. Um, that puts that puts Tolkis in the Prince Philip role. <laughs> right, exactly. And then, back to damsel in distress. Sorry, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then then Tolkis comes through and 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 because uh, now we're in Tolkis's domain, right? Like fighting off giant spider, um, and that I think is yes. also an excellent setup. Remember the wonderful description of Tolkis pursuing Ungoliant after the darkening of Valinor, um, and yet being being you know confounded by the uh, the unlight that Ungoliant weaves. Um, and uh, I, I particularly, I've always loved that phrase of Tolkis beating the air in vain, right? Um, so basically, this, this sets that up. And so I think that we have him come in and defeat her relatively handily. And then she gets hers later on. You know, so he, he comes charging after her again. Um, so he's got this personal, like, you know... You tried to eat my wife before, and now you've destroyed the trees, and I'm gonna totally, I'm gonna take you down for good this time, and he's all confident that he can do it because he feels like he let her go last time, and, um, and then she, um, uh, and then she, she wraps him up and, and he fails, uh, to get her, um, you know, sort of fails in his own overconfidence. I, I, I can easily see how both those two, uh, different, 
ungoliant Tulkus uh, uh, combat scenes could work really well. You know, two people actually, Karita and, and Cheryl, have brought up this idea of, of you know, the dancer. That first of all, Angolian is you know attracted to Nessa out of the, the 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 dance the dancer, but spiders can actually be quite graceful. Yes. You know, so Angolian herself should be much lithe and nimble and graceful and dancer like mm-hmm. herself as a, a when she's embodied in in. in humanoid form yeah i mean i i i think that we can really make their um you know make it a, a sort of a like meets meets like thing and that's where it can be that that's why it couldn't it can be or, or can at least appear to be a positive thing at the beginning um right. you know creed right. even says yeah creed even says we could have somebody that does, you know have have her be like do aerial acrobatics with the silk you know, oh yeah, the, that'd be cool. Like somebody from Cirque du Soleil, yeah, it could be, be really cool. interesting. Yeah, we yeah. could even have like that's how they meet, right? I mean, we could even begin with like uh, you know Nessa and Ungoliant dancing together, essentially. You know, right? And right, and uh, un, you know that's how it can that's how it can, that's how it could begin. Nessa could be out, you know, just sort of wandering out, and she could she could be dancing, and Ungoliant sees her, um, and dances with Ooh. her. You know, so we have throw like, back this, to the. To the Luthien experience, yeah, weird. yeah, except <laughs> not exactly right. Except um, not. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no. So, so, uh, yeah. So, the, you know, also, I really yeah. like the idea of having an opportunity for to insert like a modern dance or ballet piece in the middle of the episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Kind of like American in Paris, right? With Gene Kelly and uh, what's her name? <laughs> yes, the more. The more musical, the more musical and dance numbers that we put in the show, the happier I'll be. <laughs> and then, then we have a soundtrack. Awesome merchandising. Get Absolutely. on that. Yeah. So, and I, I think we should have them dancing to uh, Blind Guardian music. I think that will work. Uh, that will work best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Um, we, so I, I, I think... move on to the lamps. We should move yeah. on to the lamps. We totally should. Um, uh, the one last, the one last very brief thing I will say. Some people were concerned about like, how are we going to do the, how would we possibly do the trajectory of like Tokas and Nessa's relationship? I don't think we have to. Uh, cause again, I mean, I don't think it's like that. I mean, I don't think it's like, uh, you know, hey, like you want to go out on a date with me and we can get to know each other better. Like the, the pairing off the valor is just kind of different and it's okay. Like we can, Time is going to elapse between episodes, right? So, I mean, we can have, we can show them meeting in the first one and then, you know, time is going to have passed before episode six. We're just starting to build the lamps, uh, you know, or no, we've just been building the lamps, but, but a time, a, a good deal of time can pass before the destruction of the lamps. So that's okay. Um, you know, so we, they meet in one episode and they're getting married in the next episode. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, we don't have to explain it right now. I don't think so. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, okay. So we have, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we have now made time in episode five for a, pro- a prolonged dance number. Um, that makes me <laughs> yep. super Excellent. happy. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So we should transition to talking about the destruction of the lamps. Um, uh, quick announcements before we do, as we, as always, use announcements as our transition to 
sort of cleanse our palate from the previous episode and shift our gears towards the towards the new episode. Um, uh, announcements this week. First, just a reminder uh, of what I announced last week, the uh, the job openings that we have at Signum for work-study students. I encourage you again to look at the list at signumuniversity.org slash jobs. Um, would be really happy to uh, uh, to see some of you get involved um, with work at Signum. Would be I'd be happy to do that. And again, we're happy to uh, give you tuition remission in exchange um, so that you can audit or take for credit our regular classes. So, um Please do look at that and uh, send us an email if you are interested. One other reminder, um, uh, since the campaign is over, of course, we are have formed up the new Council of the Wise for uh, the Mythgard Academy, and we are uh, beginning the process of selecting the next... Um, the next books, of course, the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class is in its home stretch, which means we still have three classes left to go. But uh, but the end is now in sight. We finished discussing the book and we're moving on to the miniseries. Uh, we're going to be talking about the, the, the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell miniseries starting uh, this coming Wednesday night. Um, but, uh, you know, so in the beginning of the year, in, in January, we're going to be... Um, uh, uh, talking about the uh, uh, a new book. You know, we're going to be moving on to a new book. So if you would like a say in what books we do, uh, there is still time. Um, basically, the, the rules of the campaign were everybody who donates $25 or more can qualify to vote uh, in the election. And everyone who donates $100 or more can take part in the Council of the Wise and be part of the nominating process. They didn't nominating an initial discussion process of uh, what are the finalists that get sent on to the electorate. So um, you, if you uh, have not uh, made a contribution and, and are not a part of that yet, you still can. Uh, just go to our annual fund page, signumuniversity.org slash fund, and uh, you can still make a donation there, um, which will get you into the electorate and the Council of the Wise. So just to let you guys know that that's... Um, that that's happening. <coughs> and um, finally, Trish, uh, our third announcement is, of course, this is something people have been asking us about in which I had forgotten about or maybe was trying not to think about, but uh, Trish was reminding me of it. Uh, yes, I know. <coughs> I told her, I said, I said, I have news. <coughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and this, of course, we are referring to the release of the Battle of Five Armies Extended Edition. Um, and uh, we need to have a, uh, a Riddles in the Dark reunion to discuss the Extended Edition of the Battle of Five Armies. Um, which, as you can tell from our tone, none of us are especially looking forward to the extended edition. <laughs> I mean, I should I should be careful to reserve judgment because, of course, uh, you know, my whole complaint. Okay, not my whole complaint, but my the the core of my complaint about the Battle of Five Armies and why I disliked it so much was simply that it failed to resolve so many things. And and of the list of things I came to that uh, movie with, hoping to see, you know, questions I hope to see answered, almost none of them were answered at all. Uh, in the well, you know, so okay, maybe a bunch of them are answered in the extended edition. So maybe I'll like it much better. Um, well, we've been at, see the thing is we've been disappointed by the previous two extended editions. Well, yes, that's why I I'm not coming in real confident, but it's possible. You know, don't wanna don't. Wanna, do, do we know by the way how many minutes of new footage is there? I haven't heard that <sighs> particular snippet. I think they that was announced. I, somebody might know. I think it was in the thirty minute range. Twenty minutes. Tim Fisher says. 
20 and minutes? And remember that the extended edition has been um, was was rated something other than oh, what was it? Uh, what, it, 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 was it was rated R, right? Yeah, rated R. Yeah, and I think it's because uh, well, somebody told me they thought it was because Feely's death scene is is much more graphic than in the theater release. And I'm right. like, really seriously, that's, that's what, what makes mean. it. Yeah, great, super, more violence. That's, at least, that's, at least it's what... not. At least it's not Keely and Toriel getting it on. So. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine they 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 shoehorned in a sexually explicit scene to the extended edition. I mean, that would that seem is, that would seem I mean, a little out there. And that's what we. I mean, that's why that's why our, we're so ambivalent because the the extra material is an opportunity to resolve storylines, but we've been burned it in the past. It doesn't appear to be where, happening. Yeah. Yeah. Where what we find is that the extra material is is you know like oh we've got ten extra footage minutes of um, battle footage and fight choreography. Yeah. Oh good. Yeah. That, that's what we needed more of in this film. Um, right. And also just philosophically, we hate the fact that like. That they've become over reliant on extended editions and extra scenes for resolving. Yeah. Oh, don't worry, you didn't like the movie. Well, you can watch whatever movie you want now because you have all this extra. You can sort of pick and choose which parts you watch and stuff. Yeah, and and just actually, to, uh, that would be nice. You know, if they filmed other choices and then in the extended edition we actually pick <laughs> what we want. A you know, completely different version of the movie. Pick the version that actually resolves stuff. Yeah, I'll pick that. I'll go. I'll click on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I am, I am, uh, yeah, it is, I mean, and again, I think back, you know, Trish, to the complaint that you made before, too, about how in the Lord of the Rings films, like the theatrical editions were perfectly satisfying, self-contained right. things, <clears throat> and you just got a bunch of extra stuff, and the stuff that they cut was really extra material that really added something. You know, it wasn't just... We edited this out because it was really too long and kind of unnecessary, but we're putting it back <laughs> for the extended edition. Um, you know, and, uh, and yeah, and there wasn't that sense of really banking on it. You know, like, okay, like, well, you saw the theatrical release, but this is the real edition of the movie. You know, you should, you should, you're totally gonna, we're gonna sucker you into buying it twice. Um, that was just a less prominent dynamic as well in the, in the first one. So anyhow, I'm, I, I, We'll see. Like I said, I'm. I'm. Um, well, and also, in light of, light of Peter Jackson's recent interviews, where he said that he basically didn't plan anything and had no clue what he was doing and was just winging these movies all along, I'm not especially excited to see what got cut. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm actually. I'll be interested to think and talk about that video because, of course, it seems really interesting, right? That that interview comes out at the end after all of the criticisms about how slapped together yes. the thing seems. So, of course, yeah. like, he's not going to come out and be like, yeah, boy, like, I put the most care possible into this. This represents my best, the best work I could possibly have done, you know, given a lifetime to prepare. He's not going to say that because everyone's been complaining that it looks awful. Um, so, of course, saying like, well, due to the exigencies of the situation, like, we just had to wing it as best we could kind of puts that in the best light possible, I think. That's right. But, but right. you know. It's Guillermo del Toro's fault for quitting. It is, man. Like, it's, it, it's, and, and, you know, and the thing is, I mean, I'm even willing to, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to learn the real story behind the expansion. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever. I, uh, um, so, but but we'll 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 talk about it. It's it, 
it should be done. It will be done. <laughs> it will do it. <laughs> um, that right now, yep. the tentative t- we're thinking about, um, we still need to confirm this mostly with our families, but, uh, we're, 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 we're contemplating a next Friday evening. That is, uh, on, on the evening of Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, um, in the, in the prime time Yeah. Yeah, so next next Friday evening, not morning, but evening. That's the uh, the the tentative uh, time, but we'll confirm that through social media and uh, actually on Twitter, I actually made it Mrs. Kale's okay. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, though uh, uh, though Mrs. Doctor Olson might have something to say about it too, so we'll see. Okay. But uh, yeah. Um. Anyway. <clears throat> um. So, so yeah, so those are our announcements for today. So today we are talking about the destruction of the lamps. Now, um, the, the, the main thing I want to just sort of to remind everybody of as sort of the frame here, we have two models of this, you know, the big, the, the first and big question, um, is how exactly are we going to do? What is the scenario for how the lamps get destroyed and, and exactly how that, how that comes about? <clears throat> um, and we do have, of course, two models. And they're quite different models um, from Tolkien himself as to how this happened. In the published Silmarillion, of course, as we know, Melkor overthrows them, you know, in a fury. Like, this is just an assault upon the Valar, and Melkor comes, and while they're distracted in a time of festival, this is the first, everybody is distracted, all the good guys are distracted at a time of festival, and evil strikes while while their back is turned. Um, It's the very first example of that. Melkor comes in and throws down the lamps, and uh uh great destruction and suffering comes and he like you know goes on his way so it is it is an open act of war by an openly evil enemy um essentially in the published silmarillion in the book of lost tales it's very different and i know i've alluded to this before um but again i just wanted to remind people of it in the book of lost tales melkor is is contributing with the rest of the Valar. He is joined with them. They think he's fine. Uh, you know, they're, they're relying on his help and he dupes them from the beginning. He, he helps them build the towers. He constructs the pillars upon which the lamps are set, but he constructs the pillars out of ice, uh, on purpose to undermine them so that when the lamps are lit, everyone's like, yay, the lamps are lit. And then they melt. Uh, and, and so basically he sabotages them from the beginning. He sets them up oh. to, to come down. And then in the end, he like, he, you know, he's, so he's not only revealed as an enemy setting to destroy them. He's also, he's also like roaring with laughter because he duped them essentially. Um, oh. so that's the, that's the, those are the two sort of major, um, uh, versions of it, and I say, you know, the, the 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 major difference there is you can see how in these two different versions, Tolkien is conceiving of the relationship between Melkor and the other Valar quite differently, um, and in many ways, we are uh, the, our our version as we've been uh, sort of working out this story is um, is. F- it, pointing more back towards the Book of Lost Tales version in that, it, in that again, in the published Silmarillion, there never really is a time. We don't ever see a time in which the Valar and the Mel- and Melkor seem to be okay. You know, that where where, where where he is not openly their enemy. 
Um, the only question is they don't always know he's there. But as soon as they do realize he's there, they know that he's their enemy. Again, that's the published Silmarillion version. Um, but that wasn't always Tolkien's idea. So, anyway. Um, uh, yeah, and Timothy, it is another example of the stupid Valar. I mean, they do look quite foolish. Much They, they, they look much more foolish much more often in the Book of Lost Tales than they do in the published uh Silmarillion, and I, I realize, of course, it's one of the it's one of the the real dangers. And I'm not saying that we do it like that exactly. Um, certainly not. It would be certainly difficult to uh, to do the ice thing literally, you know, and just have them be like, "Oh, um, those are nice sparkly pillars. I'm sure nothing bad will happen." I mean, it, we you know we don't want to make them look dumb. Um, but actually, a one quick question before we. Before we start our discussion of this, um, is there anything do, we haven't thought about the frame for several epi- for several episodes? Yeah. And that's okay. I mean, oh, I think boy. we're kind of in a stretch where we don't need it all that much, or we can come back if we feel there are questions we need answered. We can always come back to it there. You know, that is, if if we feel like if we feel the need to have Estelle assist our watchers, our you know our viewers by asking a question which is likely to be on their minds, we could do that. But um, uh, do we want to revisit at, at any point in this stretch here? Do we want to revisit the frame and, and bring back in some of the frame stories, the Elrond, Gilrine thing, any of that kind of stuff? Do we do we do we do we want to touch base with those things at all? <clears throat> it seems like we probably should. I mean, how many episodes can we go without having the frame there? Um, I know we said we don't want to necessarily do it every single time and have it be pervasive, um, but I, I suppose you know one of the things could be—I <laughs> mean, one of the things could be back to my idea. You know, Estella says, "Well, why didn't Nessa just evaporate herself?" Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you could have that. I, I the only problem is I don't want to make it too Princess Bridey. You know? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, but also, see, I'm, but but there, I'm I think our biggest disinclined to have explicit conversations about these sort of metaphysics of things like that. Right. Like, I feel like right. we're we're yeah going yeah. Up into the pedantism by having you know the having Elrond explain like the physics of the, the yeah the yeah bodies and right yeah um, and also I'm not sure how frame, what we have to think about is what we have to think about is like like how does this connect to whatever story it is we're telling in the frame world and i think and i think i think we should we should not shoehorn it in or yes. or use or use the frame just for simple exposition i think i think in cases where we have an episode that we're like this is a really important story to tell um, about the valar or about the first age and it really actually doesn't strongly connect to the really important story we we're telling in the frame. I think those are places where we should we should concede that and just mm-hmm. minimize the frame. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. One other argument for doing at least a brief return to the frame at the beginning of episode six is because time passes. Um you know, and potentially a large amount of time. Um, we don't know exactly how long the lamps were shining before Melkor destroyed them, and we can stretch that out if we like. Um, so we can create the sense of time passing by really separating those, by coming back to Elrond at the end of 
you know, maybe we, maybe we come back to Elrond at the very end of episode five, or at the very least we begin with it at the beginning of episode six, um, and spend maybe five minutes in Rivendell at the beginning of the episode or three minutes in Rivendell. Um, so that when it starts up again, it's clearly like, and now I'm going to tell you the story of the destruction of the lamps. Um, and so, you know, at least leaving open the idea or, you know, Elrond can begin by saying, you know, after, you know, you know, much time had passed, then, you know, this next thing happens. So, um, that's another factor. And again, we don't want that just to be hokey. You know, we don't want that merely to be like many, many years later, uh, this occurred, but (laughs) when um, last we saw the Valar. Yeah. (laughs) But remember that, that one of the ways in which we were having successfully, I thought the, uh, the tension among, you know, Gilrein and Elrond and the whole human elf thing that we were showing, we were so, sort of paralleling that tension with the tensions within the story. Um, and we can, it, it would be, I think it could work for us to bring that element in again, at, because here's a place where like tensions are going to really be coming to a head. Right. Um, I, I, so we could do that. I don't have any really concrete ideas about it, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. If anybody, if any of our listeners do, it would be really cool. Maybe, you know, maybe we can come back to this at the beginning of the next episode if people have some suggestions. But I just wanted to kind of, you know, it's been a while since we talked about it. So, um, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure to mention it. Um, I think it could work. I, I think this could be a moment when for a couple reasons we might want to, we might want to revisit Rivendell briefly. Um, I, I, we should. I mean, I'm thinking right. probably we ought to try to every like three episodes ish on least, average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, okay. So back to the destruction of the lamps. Thing. Uh, it, well, one other thing, by the way. Okay. One thing we could do with the frame is, you know, we've talked about making the frame have its own story, and right. you know, we haven't really addressed like the Gilrein Elrond conflict. Thing going yeah, it's on. been a while. So that's why that's exactly what I was thinking so, we could return to. You briefly. know, rather than have Elrond be the narrator and of you know the Valar story, that there can be something yeah going on. I, I'm not sure what we took it to because we sort of identified some stuff earlier on where Gilrein and Elrond could have a falling out, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure given where we are with the story, I'm not sure that there's something, but it's probably worth thinking about. Yeah, maybe y'all listeners, you know, see think about it, and if there's some something that you think could forward that thing, you know, where we're showing the Gilrein Elrond kind of conflict um, over Estelle's education or, or telling him his destiny or whatever, you know, make some suggestions and we can yeah. revisit that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Okay, so, destruction of the lamp. So, uh, I, I, you know, again, I'm assuming we don't want to do the uh, uh, the ice pillars and the making the Valar look like fools version of it. Um, but, uh, excluding that one, there are, there are three main scenarios that I was thinking of, and you guys can tell me if you have other sort of scenarios or suggestions, but the, the way I would kind of break down the options would be, um, A is basically the published Silmarillion version, essentially, that, like, basically Melkor himself overthrows them in a fury, um, and, and again, here my question is, is really, I'm kind of breaking this down into two things. One, I want to talk about the actual destruction itself. Like, how does how does it happen? Who does it? Does Melkor himself throw them down, or 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 does it happen some other way? Um, 
And then, but, and then the second and much more complicated question is, what is the fallout from this? What does it mean? How, what level of suspicion, um, it attaches to Melkor as a consequence of this event. Um, so the two, the two primary suggestions that I had for the actual act of destruction is that Mel, one, Melkor overthrows them himself personally, and the second that he has it done, that is his underlings, probably the Balrogs, um, or the proto Balrogs, do it. Um, I suppose another thing is that there could be a kind of a kind of conspiracy. Um, there could be a there, uh, that is to say, like he, you know, we talked about him getting to meet, getting to know Sauron or Myron um, a bit in the you know in the last episode we talked about that that the two of them could be working together in the construction. We could have a kind of nod to the ice pillars thing, not with literal ice or anything that simple, but basically, um, you know. Sauron can essentially sabotage them, right? You know, I mean, th- can build build some kind of yeah, yeah. So that what, so that he what, um, he I'm has a mechanism by which he can really collapse. Position, them. Pos- yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so we've we've positioned the the um we've positioned the 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 building of the lamps from Melkor's point of view as like something that he's on board with and that he intends to possess. So how do we? How do we justify and motivate his desire to destroy them? Well, I think it's basically a like a sort of a combination of um, fine that I'll take my ball and go home. A combination of that with if I can't have them, then nobody can have them. I mean, it's like a the. I think that his motivation has to be frustration that he's not being allowed to be in. Like basically, he's not getting respect. Um, he views these as him, as they belong to him and they are his ultimate triumph. I mean, I think we need to build up the building of the lamps, um, as sort of the crowning glory of the formation of the world. It's not that the whole formation of the world is done. Certainly the whole history of the world isn't done. But basically, when the lamps are lit and, you know, and what looks like what is now the shade of sunlight, uh, you know, breaks out in the flowers and the trees and the, the songbirds and everything else. That's the moment at which I think the Valar can all be kind of looking out at the world and saying, okay, good. That's done then. Right. You know, this, we have, we have, we have accomplished our end. You know, we have, uh, the, this is the, this is the, this is the final, this is the, you know, the lamps are like the cherry on the Sunday that is Arda. Right. Um, and Melkor sees this as like the beginning of his reign, essentially. Um, but where the problem then comes in is the, and, and this is why, like, I, 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 I think it's really important to build up the glory of the lamps in that way because I think that, I, you know, as I said at the very beginning, I think episode six is sort of the turning point of season number of season one, um, where things things have been going upwards the whole time, um, even though there's been uncertainty, and we, the audience, are pretty sure that Melkor can't really be relied upon. Yet again, he still thinks himself to be good, and uh, the other Valar think him to be good, and we may even the we may even want you know we should want the viewers to believe that it could actually work out. Um, things look like they're all trending upward in a positive direction. 
episode six is the one where they turn around and we see, we see certainly that conflict is inevitable, that this is definitely not going to work and that this is now heading towards uh, the war to begin all wars at the end of this, at, at the end of season one. And what gets there is Melkor and the rest of the Valar not seeing eye to eye about who's actually in charge. There should be some tension. I think probably especially between um, Melkor and Manwe, probably. Um, uh, you know, basically people, be, you know, people not being comfortable with Melkor's um, claims, essentially. You know, him acting like he owns the place. Um, and he, he, he sees it. He knows it. I, again, I don't think it comes to open conflict yet. <clears throat> but he feels disrespected. And he can see, he basically sees where things are going. Um, you know, he, he can tell that, you know, although things are still okay and everyone, you know, there, people are kind of uncomfortable and some people are grumbling, but some are not. Um, some are happy with him, um, uh, or appear to be happy with him. But, uh, but again, he, 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 he feels like he's been slighted, um, like they're not going to, uh, to recognize his mastery. Um, and so he says, you know, fine, then I'm going to set up my own, you know, I'm going to set up on my own. I'm going to set up my own kingdom. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to make them recognize that I am the boss, that I am really the power. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do that by showing those lamps are mine. I've been saying those lamps are mine. People, if people, if they're not going to accept that those lamps are mine, um, maybe Varda is the one who says something about it that really gets to him. Um, thinking back, you know, uh, making connections back to episode three with Varda and Melkor's exchanges in the yeah. void. Um, and, and he's, so he says, fine, look, I, I, look, I own them, right? So I'm taking them away. I'm going to destroy them and destroy their nice little town in Almorin. Um, and I'm going to set up my own kingdom, which is going to be even more glorious. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so honestly, I think that that's his, that, that his motivation is basically spite. Like he's trying to teach them a lesson. He's asserting his dominance. So. Um. Yeah. It also. Yeah. I. I, I, I that. Oh, go ahead, Trish. No, no, go ahead. I actually didn't really have a complete thought, so you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm just. I'm trying to align that with. Um. With his. With if we have him sabotage them from the very beginning, which I kind of like that idea. I'm trying to align that with also the sense in which. I mean, I guess. I guess. Is that something we would portray as we're portraying the destruction, or we do we do we plant that? Do we see like like ominous scenes of of Sauron and some of the Balrog smithies uh, smiths, um, you know, sort of doing things that we look and we're like that doesn't look like that doesn't look like that belongs there, right. or is this right. going to be a surprise where 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 in the previous episode we show Melkor and his flunkies being totally on board with building this thing because as far as they can tell it's a monument to his glory. And then only afterward, in sort of a surprise reveal, when he feels rejected and decides to bring them down and destroy everything, does he reveal that he sabotaged them. So the viewers are also surprised. Right. Um, I don't also, know. Also, on that note, Mar Marie Prosser has yeah. an interesting point, which is she's, she, she, her pushback on the idea of the lamps being sabotaged is that, is that, that do we, do, is, 
are we sort of diminishing the nature of the lamps by by having them be fundamentally flawed? Um, that that there's a sense in which there's a sense in which the version the version of the tale where he builds them out of ice and they melt, like they never stood a chance, and there really wasn't anything good about them, and it's right. just kind of like an elaborate prank. Right. The version where the they apparent really glory are, was just they, an illusion all along. Yeah. The version where they're wholesome and 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 they really could that you know like once lit they do not immediately um, they do not immediately melt turns them into actually something good so their loss really is a tragedy when he destroys them. Yeah, I, now it was exactly Marie's comment that I was just sitting and thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me a choice between two things, and I could see an argument for either one. Um, if we make if we go the sabotage route, Maria's right. It does undermine the perfection. It means that we know there's a flaw in the perfection, so that there is a discordant note in the glorious climax at the end of episode five. Um, and therefore, that means, as Maria's suggesting, there never is like Edenic perfection achieved. So it's not just that like. Do we want to show this really is sort of perfection, right? It, 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 it will, this is the high watermark of the glory of Arda, essentially, and the marring is going to happen from here. Um, or, do, you know, do we want to introduce into that moment, that moment which is the high watermark, do we want to introduce that, that's, that one sour note, right? They could come down at any minute, right? If Sauron flips the switch. Um, that's, uh, I think that's a, that's a legitimate, I mean, I, I, I can see the argument against that. I can see the argument to say, no, we actually wanted to pick something that's really just positive. Um, this really is sort of a glorious paradisical moment that is achieved and then it's destroyed later on. Um, well, but that, it, but know, it is achieved note, briefly. Last week we seemed ambivalent. We seemed to think that the lamps were, were, were in fact not Perfect, and we're yes. not. They were that the yeah. Actually, yeah. That's an that's an interesting point. Last week, the sense was that the marring had already occurred. That this was just the this was one of many sort of well-intentioned mistakes that the Valar make all along the way. That this this was in a sense, although there some good came of the lamps, they also some bad came because they created shadows and they kind of hoarded the light and stuff. So it'd be interesting if Melkor could exploit that fact in some yes. way. So it isn't just. He tricked them and sabotaged them, but that he he exploits some fundamental flaw of the lamps to destroy them, and 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 reveals that the folly was not simply trusting him, but that there was folly in building the lamps all along. Yes, um, yeah, and actually, I can see how that would be done because you're right, and I do for the reason that you're just describing. I do think that we should be okay with that sour note, right? Um, that the glory of the lighting of the lamps should not be seen as simply and purely good and glorious. Um, there should be a, a hesitation. There should be a reservation um, that I think that Arda is marred basically from the beginning. And again, that's what Tolkien depicts in the published Silmarillion. You know, as soon as the Valar come down, Melkor comes in very soon after and that none of their ends are ever really achieved. And um, so there is no moment in the history of Middle-earth where we do get, here is the pure, perfect fulfillment of the Valar's vision 
but then it gets destroyed. Um, that's a very attractive idea, you know, that idea of paradise lost, essentially. Um, <clears throat> but I still think we can do sort of, we can still have the paradise lost element, but I don't think it needs to be perfect. I don't think it should be perfect. Um, because you're right, Dave, even the, 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 the idea of the concentration of light into the lamps, um, as part of the pattern of the mistake that the Valar are going to make and going to carry on making um, for a while, I think is important. So that even conceptually, and I think I can see the link between it. Why are the lamps dangerous? Why, why were the lamps dubious in the first place? The lamps were dubious in the first... According to our reasoning last time. The lamps were dubious in the first place because of the concentration of light, right? Instead of distributing the light evenly across Arda, they've decided to concentrate the light, which means that part of Arda, namely the part where they are living personally, is going to be very great and very glorious and very beautiful, but the extremities, the outer parts of Arda, are going to be less so. They're going to be darker than they would have been. Um, and so, Dave, the concentration of the light into the lamps, that's the flaw. Because when the lamps are released, when that concentrated light is spilled out, in the destruction of the lamps, it causes destruction. The kind of destructiveness, you know, so that's when we get, like, the the molten light burning and destroying things. Um, and it's only because it was concentrated together that it has that destructive effect. Um, so we can show in that way that the destructive, the, the destruction that is brought about um, by the throwing down of the lamps is, in its way, the direct consequence of the of the, the error in judgment that they made in the previous episode. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think that that works. Does, does um, you know, Krita, I think, echo, brings up an interesting point, which which echoes sort of Marie's sentiment, which is, does that undermine the tragedy of the destruction of lamps? I'm, I don't actually think so, because I think, I mean, there's nothing, there are, is there really anything, any incident, instance, in the Silmarillion where, where, um, there's something that is sort of like like in like a hundred percent good, and then gets destroyed, and it, and that's sad when it gets destroyed, and that but there isn't some downstream good that comes out of that. I feel like the Sil throughout the Silmarillion, good and evil are intermingled, and that just because something isn't perfect doesn't mean it's not sad when it gets destroyed. Yes, um, right. That's true. Even the, even I mean, the very end of the Lord of the Rings, the the most evil artifact in Middle Earth, the ring, is destroyed. And what's the overwhelm? You know, what's the what is the sentiment at the end? Joy mingled with grief. Right. Because we're really glad the evil guy's done dead, but the destruction of the ring also means all these other good things are done too. Yeah. Well, I think. The answer to the question that you asked, that is, where in the Silmarillion do we see, like, a thing which is sort of purely good or, or sort of perfect getting, until it gets destroyed? The answer would be, if anywhere, the trees, right? Yeah, right, yep. Um, and for that reason, I think that, I, the more I think about it, the more I'm inclining against the, the actual sabotage idea. Um, mm -hmm. because of the way in which I would want the trees, the, the trees and the lamps to be connected again with the same kind of typological connection that we're doing, mm -hmm. you know, the destruction of the lamps 
is an anticipation of the, you know, so the, the season two is going to be culminating with the darkening of Valinor. Um, we're going to be anticipating the darkening of Valinor in this episode, right? You know, so that's going to yeah. be, it's going to seem, uh, it's on a sort of smaller scale with the trees than it is with the lamps. Um, but it's going to f- seem like a bigger deal when we get around to it the second time, I think. But um, but still, yeah. it, sh- it should anticipate that. So the more I think that about it, the more I like the idea funny. of the trees, be- the lamps being, if not perfect, like it- it's not that the construction of the lamp is, the lamps are flawed. Um, they might be, you know, just purely, completely marvelous, beautiful, excellent constructions. It's the idea of the lamps that was flawed. Um, yeah, you know they're they're done really well. They just weren't a great idea, um, and the fact that they become the bone of contention uh, sort of illustrates that. I think um, they were a perfectly executed bad idea. Perfectly executed bad idea, exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think and, you're right. And, 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 and with that, that, you know, the idea of thinking about ungoliant, like you know, Morgoth striking and ungoliant sucking the light out of the trees. Um, we want to be anticipating that. So, you know, so I think the, that image of the lamps in their, you know, in their perfect beauty, you know, falling and collapsing and becoming these like, you know, uh, you know, this sort of bath of liquid fire, um, uh, you know, and the horrible burning destruction emerging from these gorgeous lamps. I think that that's, that I think works better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think this is interesting. We have to be careful how we we can, if we're careful, we can really use this, as you say, to perfectly set up the the climax of season two. If we're not careful, we could have the viewers saying at the end of season two, "Didn't we already watch this? Didn't we already watch this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and well, I, this, this Melkor guy, like basically these these Valar and Melkor, they there's no they never have any new ideas. Right. They build something with light, Melkor knocks it down. Build something with light again, Melkor destroys it. Builds on. Right, which is true. You know, I mean, it's it's which true, that, they, true. <laughs> that that's how it works. <laughs> um, uh, that is how it works, but but yeah, I mean, we don't want to make it seem like uh, you know, second verse same as the first, right? You I know, mean, it, it it shouldn't have that sense, but um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, Ungoliant's role is going to make that pretty simple. That is, um, there's not going to be a deficiency of light as a consequence of the destruction of the lamps. Um, the, the, the consequence there is that the, you know, Almarin, the, the central place, the beautiful spot of the Valar is going to get physically destroyed. It's going to burn. Um, it's going to burn in, in, you know, Melkorian fire, um, as a consequence of the destruction of the lamps the dynamic is going to be totally different at the darkening of Valinor because there we have bereavement. Like, they, they have lost. The light is gone, and there isn't light anymore. I mean, the, I, the, that's going to be, like, the darkest um, the darkest episode we will have... I mean, like, physically darkest episode we will have had. Um, in fact, I actually think that it would be really fun to do... Um, um, a bunch of scenes, like, actually in the pitch darkness, to have, like, a bunch of, like, some, like, audio-only scenes, um, 
uh, you know, not not the whole episode, of course, but but really to actually have not not movie darkness, you know, not just like kind of dimness, right? Which is all they ever do in movies for darkness, but real genuine right. pitch darkness um, uh, at at you know at those crucial moments um, to uh, to really kind of convey the shock of that. But anyway, whatever. Um, my point is, I think it will come across really differently. Um, so I don't think we're, we 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 need to be too worried about that, but. Yeah, anyway, okay. Yeah, uh, but the 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 related questions, the sort of the 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 big related question here is what is what is the effect? How do the dynamics work? Because I think the question of physically how do the lamps get destroyed? Does Melkor throw them down, or does he subcontract the throwing down of the lamps? Um, uh, really is going to have to do with the 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 bigger question of of the fallout. So here I see sort of four four different options, right? We could if we chose have the destruction of the lamps occur and have the Valar be completely ignorant about how it happened, right? And so nobody or very few people really suspect Melkor. The people who are already uncomfortable with Melkor may have their suspicions deepened. But basically option number 1 would be for Melkor to emerge from this with his relationship with the Valar theoretically undisturbed. That is, it's un, it's disturbed from his side, right? This 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 will be the point where he begins to actively plot against the Valar and to set up for himself, and he begins establishing his kingdom in Atomno and all that stuff. Um, so it's a turning point for him. But basically, most of the rest of the Valar are still assuming that Melkor is one of them. They don't connect him with the destruction at all. That's one option. Option two is that there is much open suspicion of Melkor. Lots of people are uneasy, and it, but but there's no proof, right? So that you know, it's it's not a smoking gun. This is not an act of open defiance. It's just where there had been some uneasiness before. Now there's a lot of uneasiness, but there's still reason to think that it might be mistaken and that they're uh, wrongfully suspecting. Um, Melkor. Option three would be that if he does subcontract, if he like sends the proto Balrogs to destroy the lamps, um, it can be known that associates like it can be associated with him. Um, that some of his servants did, you know, some of those, some of his people definitely did it, and there can be proof that they did it. But Melkor retains some kind of deniability. Um, so that, again, it's not like something that he has been himself found guilty of. And the fourth option is that his guilt is is proven. Everybody knows that he did it, and they all pretty much assume, you know, leave believing that he's their enemy. Those seem to me to be the four options for what the fallout from the destruction can be. Um, what do you think? Hmm. Ah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I brain freeze. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, do we still have Trish? <laughs> yes, well, I have brain freeze. That's why I've been so quiet. I'm like, hmm. I think we... My first impulse is to avoid the extremes here. Yes, um, I agree. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, I think if, if they are in open enmity, it's going to become harder to take another seven episodes to build up to the war. Right. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, if 
if Melkor is proven to have done it himself, or to have directly ordered it, if everybody knows that he has declared war on them, then even if they, you know, they, there might still, we might still be able to justify a struggle of like, oh, but do we really have to go to war? Um, but like, basically, somebody's going to have to tie and gag Tolkas for seven solid episodes to keep him from going <laughs> after Melkor, right? So, um, so I, I, I kind of think we can't. We can't be that overt about it if we want to still retain the overall arc of having the Valar really sort of slowly coming to understand that this conflict is inevitable, that Melkor really just, he just flat is their enemy and there's no misunderstanding, there's no, um, you know, there's no, uh, he's misunderstood, there's no, maybe we can work this out, uh, you know, he is just their enemy and they have to fight him. Um, so I think if we're gonna, if we're gonna continue the sort of the slower trajectory towards that, we have to avoid that. And similarly, I think it's gonna be, um, I think that this still, this needs to be a significant turning point, more significant than him, nobody even suspecting he had anything to do with it. Um, even in that case, it still, again, is a turning point for him. We will still see, we can still show the viewers Melkor making the call. Either him throwing down the lamps, even if nobody sees him or suspects him, we can still show the viewers Melkor throwing down the lamps or giving the order for the Balrogs to do it. Um, but again, I think that having, you know, going full option one and having nobody even suspect that Melkor or his lackeys were involved at all seems to me too much. Um, and it doesn't yeah. really progress the arc on their side either. Um, so, I wonder, I yeah. wonder if, um, wonder if the way you can do that is by having him do it, having him be shown doing it to us, maybe not having anyone, any of the other Valar directly witness it, but he disappears afterward would be very suspicious yeah right but it but that would give but that would that would that would without direct evidence or someone witnessing it that would at least give some reason for 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 not immediately marching off to war sort of just a set of circles you know and also they don't know where he is therefore they they don't can't immediately marshal their forces and march after him because they don't even know where he went Right. Maybe maybe somebody thinks, especially oh, and you know, one thing you could do is maybe initially there could be some suspicion that Ungoliant did it, and maybe people even think that Melkor felt felt prey to her. So maybe it, maybe initially they're like, poor Mel, the the lamps are destroyed, and they think maybe something bad happened to Melkor, and they're worried about it. Right. Right. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because um, we do have, you know, we we have just in the previous episode presented Ungoliant as a bad guy, right? And, and like a bad guy known by the Valar to be a bad guy. She's like the first mm-hmm. legitimate open villain, right, um, that the Valar will have known about. And in fact, the fact that she is associated with shadows, um, we can uh, – th- this this would be the, exactly the kind of thing she would do, Right. Right. Uh, and of course, this ironically sets up the darkening of Valinor, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, like destroying the sources of light—that's totally something Ungoliant would do. Oh, except it turns out she's innocent, right? Except that then, of course, she's not going to be innocent the next time. Um, yes. Uh, so, so yeah, actually, having the suspicion fall on her is not only logical; it's actually kind of lovely from a from a larger plot structure standpoint. Um. 
Yeah, and and having him just go off. So yeah, I I, I do actually think having Melkor storm away. Um, I don't think we have a confrontation with Melkor. I do think that he he because he's mad. I mean, he ultimately he sort of destroys the lamps in a fit of pique, essentially. Um, and he and so he leaves. He storms off. And so yeah, maybe they're they're worried about him. Some of them are saying like, yeah, this is a really bad sign. I think that you know uh, you know, and this fits with his desire for lordship. Like I think we need to be really careful about Melkor. And others saying, and maybe Nienna among them saying, no, like we should have compassion. He may be suffering. He may be he may be a victim here. You know, we need to reach out to him. We need to find him. Um, I think that that's I I, I really kind of like that. Um, now, the Balrogs, several people, um, Marie Prosser was just suggesting that, and a bunch of people in our, uh, on the discussion boards, there was a, there was a, a, a thriving discussion on the, dis- on the discussion boards about this. The idea that the moment of the destruction of the lamps can be the moment where the Balrogs visibly fall, where they cease to be the shiny, pretty proto-Balrogs and become the shadow and flame Balrogs. Um, the wingless shadow and flame Balrogs that we all know. Um, a, a couple of people have suggested that they actually get their wings physically burned off uh, at this point, and so they are a, they are a visibly marred uh, um, uh, shadow, as it were, of their former selves. Here, which would of course make it sort of delicious that, uh, therefore the speculation, the speculation that Balrogs have wings would be a really sensitive subject for the Balrogs, uh, and they would be, uh, <laughs> like there's, there, there's, there's no better way to tick off a Balrog than to, uh, yeah. than to opine that it has wings. It's like, don't say the right. W around them. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much for bringing up such a sensitive subject. Why don't you just give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice in it? Um, uh, but I'm sorry, we were trying not to link it to the Princess Bride, so let me move on. Um, I, there are, there was, I, I, I want to highlight the discussion that was going on in the discussion board about this, though, because I think it's really interesting. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll try to give some of the back and forth here. Um, Hakan was, was suggesting that they, uh, um, they lose their beautiful forms and wings and take on shapes of fire and shadow. Uh, he's, he's one who proposed that on the discussion board. Um, Nicholas Palazzo, um, brought Arian in. Remember we had talked about Arian, the spirit of fire who will eventually become the spirit of the sun. And we had talked about her, uh, being the dissenting voice and her being the Balrog that remained good. I still love that idea putting her in the, in Milton's Abdiel role. Love it. Love it. Um, Anyway, so, uh, so Nicholas thinks this is the moment, right, where she leaves at the destruction of the, so the Balrogs get sent to destroy the lamps, and Abdi, and, uh, I almost called her Abdio. Arian refuses. Um, and, uh, 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 so Nicholas says that, uh, she maybe performs some kind of phoenix-like explosion, which disfigures the others and changes them into their final forms, um, uh, maybe she comes back, you know, maybe she limps back to, to, to Almarin and she bears witness, you know, tells them what the Balrogs did. Um, the, uh, Matthew W. was wondering whether maybe the transformation of the Balrogs should be explicitly a punishment for their actions in destroying the lamps. Um, or should it be a natural consequence in some way? Um, you know, maybe, that is, maybe they adopt this form for the purpose of destroying the lamps and then are unable to change from it. Um, and uh, uh, and Nicholas Palazzo had another suggestion about how it could be a consequence of the transformation. Um, 
that, uh, that again, basically they themselves were scarred. So we can see them themselves caught up in the liquid fire and they are physically marred, um, by the destruction of the lamps. Um, so we can again show it to be a direct consequence of their action, though not a sort of a punishment from outside. Um, Hawkins' final comment on this was that he sort of is thinking that the, the, the shape of the Balrog should be something that they are constrained to, something that comes from outside, um, them, um, either by, either as a punishment or even by, by Melkor himself. Um, but, uh, anyway, so I, um, yeah, maybe, maybe this is, maybe, maybe it's uh, a consequence of the lamps being destroyed. Maybe they get horribly burned or scarred in that process. Maybe, maybe these guys were just like the common laborers who were working on the lamps and, and sort of in there, like, you know, maybe they weren't even complicit in its destruction and they just got sort of, they're just unfortunate victims of it. But in that, you know, part of the tragedy would be that in the process of that, they, they, they eventually become bitter and they turn and join Melkor or something. Hmm. Well, they, the spirits of fire were with him from the beginning. Uh, I think, um, you know, they're his people, right? I mean, he, he's like right. the, like the, the fire and extremes of temperature guy. And so the spirits of fire, which are still beautiful and right, luminous right. and, and winged and but awesome. Does that mean they were corrupt from the beginning? Maybe they were with him sort of, but you know, like kind of just sort of like blithely following the guy that's in charge without right. knowing, without knowing explicitly that everything he's, you know, that the things he's doing. Well, remember Melkor, we Melkor's not overtly corrupt from the beginning either. Exactly, not overtly, no. But yeah, I mean, right. I, I, I do think that this is, I mean, essentially what we're doing here, I, I mean, I think that we need to sort of re- remember that what we're doing here is exactly what Tolkien described. Remember, you get the music, right? And then you get the vision, and then you get the working out of it in history. Um, and it's essentially, it's like, it's the same story being, you know, being sort of developed or in different media, right? But it's basically the same story. So the idea that within the history of Arda here, what we see happening in the music is getting recapitulated. That's what should happen, right? And what happened right. in the music is that it started with Melkor. Melkor was the only right. one who was in Discord, and then others came to attune their music to him. So by definition, therefore, right. the question, are the Balrogs good originally, is yes, of course they were. Melkor himself was good originally, and they right. only became bad by following along with him. So I do think, therefore, it would seem fitting for us to have the Balrogs would need to fall themselves, that is, like, of their own will. Um, so I think that we couldn't have the Balrogs already be, like, de facto evil, essentially. Um, I think that they would be... Um, they would be... This would have to be a turning point for them as well. This would have to be a moment of crisis for them. And I like the way that the Balrogs can work as a kind of symbol here. That is to say, we talked about how Melkor's identity isn't really changed, right? He doesn't become Morgoth until later on. His own, like his physical person and his own, even his own self-identity exactly, doesn't really fully change until he becomes Morgoth later on. But internally, the change is still happening, and I think that one of, the, and I think that one of the ways in which we can represent that is through the Balrogs, 
basically. The Balrogs are like the external indicator. Um, this is the moment, as I said, this is a turning point. This is a turning point for him. Whether he thinks about it this way or not, whether the Valar know it or not, this is the point at which Melkor has turned against them. Um, it's a turning point for him in his relationship with the Valar. No longer is he going to try to play the nice guy with them, honestly. He may try to fake being the nice guy, but he wasn't faking before. Before he went together to work with them under the belief that he was going to obviously be in charge, right? Because clearly they were going to recognize his innate superiority to them, and so that was all going to work out, right? So he went there, in in a sense, in good faith, right? Um, no longer is he gonna, is he gonna be working in good faith. That change has happened. He still doesn't think of himself as evil. He still doesn't believe he's the bad guy. He's the injured party, right? Uh, you know, trying to get his own and trying to assert, and now he just has to, he has to make things be the way they're supposed to be, you know, despite them instead of with them, right? Because they obviously don't know what's good. Um, so that's his attitude now. He hasn't changed his own identity. He hasn't like embraced the darkness and become Morgoth, but he, but he is work. He is the enemy of the of of the Valar in his own mind. He's their enemy now, and that enmity, that change, is represented. The, the, the Balrogs become the kind of symbol of that. Whereas they were these beautiful, luminous, fiery spirits, now they are shadow and flame. His servants, his people, the ones who are associated with him, are now openly, like visibly, dark and evil. Um, and or at least again, even the sh- the Balrogs themselves are a mingling of shadow and flame. Right? There's light and darkness in the Balrogs, um, and we can, you know, and, and so again, I, I think we can make the Balrogs into a into a really really cool sort of symbol and visual cue um, for for how we as viewers, resp- are, you know, are sort of responding to Melkor in that moment, which is which is fun, but it means that we need to make the Balrogs fall. Like the Balrogs need to be making a choice to fall. Maybe this is their idea. Maybe maybe Melkor is complaining, right? Maybe Melkor is saying uh you know, he's he's doing his like speech. He's ranting, right? He's ranting about how they don't respect him and how the lamps really belong to him and how if if he, you know, can't if 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 they don't recognize that he owns them then they don't deserve to have them and that's when the balrogs make the they they make the choice to destroy the lamps and that's their well, moment of fall uh, or what if you or what if you flipped it a little bit and made it and had like melkor sort of sort of um rather than have melkor complaining about how he's being slighted melkor can instead be telling the balrog guys that they've been slighted yes yes that their role's been minimized and, you know, that so, so instead of having him complain and the Balrogs being like, hey boss, why don't we tear it down, have Melkor sort of do this like rousing speech to call them to action, to stand up for themselves and fight back against the tyrannical powers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the only question would be how much initiative the Balrogs have. I mean, yeah, they could, and that could be the moment where Arian is like, I'm out. Right. The problem there, though, Ariel is, or yeah, Arian is is Arian is the witness. I know I'm conflating her name. I'm just mixing her name with. Uh, well, well, maybe with maybe, um, maybe she's a witness. Maybe then. Melkor, maybe Melkor excludes Arian from this secret meeting. Or so whoever. Well, however this transpires, whoever sort of the genesis of this like little, this like cabal to, to destroy the lamps and show everybody else, 
Like, clearly, if, if what we want to do is we want there to be a mystery as to exactly what happened to the lamps, um, then, then Arian and the, the Arian and potential witnesses have to be excluded. Like, like somebody, somebody along the line, I think, has to have been paying attention and has a pretty good sense of who's with Melkor and who isn't beforehand. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm laughing at Mark Ingram's <laughs> suggestion that Melkor just unwisely says, who will rid me of these troublesome lamps? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love the Thomas a. Beckett reference. Uh, that would be, that would be lovely. Um, yeah. Okay. No, no, I, I've got it. I've got it. Um, Arian is there. Arian is there. Um, but what she's there for is like he's he's complaining. I know. I, I think the idea should emerge from it. He shouldn't be inciting them to do it. They should do it on their own. This should be their idea. He complains. You know. He, so he's he's saying like the you know the Valar don't respect me. This is you know I'm I'm insulted. They don't understand. So you know he he does his whole like narcissistic rant thing right, and then it does. Goth, it comes from it's Gothmog's idea. Right, it's it's so the, the the leader of the Balrog, he 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 then like calls like a Balrog meeting, uh, proto Balrog meeting, and says, "Our master has been slighted. We're not going to put up with this." And anyway, like the idea of liberating the flame, like they kind of like this idea, right? So like mm-hmm. you know, let's release the flame, um, and they throw down the and and Ar- and Arian leaves. So now Arian doesn't have direct evidence against Melkor because she, she'll tell them it wasn't his idea because it wasn't his idea, um, and then th- so then this can be what fuels the uncertainty. Many of the Valar can then respond to this by saying, "See, look, he's evil, right? Like we have to face the fact that he is that he is our enemy. He wanted this to happen." And others can say, "No, you know, you know, th- this came from Gothmog. That the, those spirits were con- they, oh, they, right. they did a terrible thing." Actually, that, that is a nice misdirection. Yeah, and then and so so th- there's um, still good reason for them to believe that oh Melkor's just misunderstood, right? And unfortunately, you know, his lackeys made a made a really bad call. Um and he can even sort of pretend to repent of it if we have further interactions with him later on or or not repent of it, but be like, Oh man, I was so sorry to hear about that. Anyway, so Aryan leaves and she goes back the, and then the Balrogs and then their form changes. Um and I think actually we can kind of leave it almost ambiguous, right? We can see them get sort of consumed in the flames, right? You know, so the flames come and the Balrogs are part of the flames emerging from the, from the lamps. You know, they yeah. are surrounded and sort of like baptized in the flame and then they emerge. Yeah, maybe they kind of steal, maybe it's almost like they're stealing the light for themselves or something. Right, right, exactly. Um, and so it, there can be, there, there could be some sort of ambiguity there. Right? Um, is this, were they damaged by the fire in this way? Were they damaged by their choice? Both is kind of correct. You know, do they want to be in this flame? Is this, is this, uh, is this new form that they have, like, a, a representation of their true being? Or, or, or is this uh, something they're imprisoned in? I mean, I think having some uncertainty about that would actually be kind of cool. Um, and so that, but, but, but then, then the final scene of the episode, um, can be Gothmog coming to Melkor and telling him what they did. And Melkor can smile and say, excellent. Mm-hmm. Right? So we know he likes it. But he yeah, didn't, basically but he didn't the do it. Being that, yeah. 
and we can and, and that also yeah, then yeah, opens up it. opens up the possibility that he did actually want them to do it in the first place you know that he was actually in some way manipulating the yeah. balrogs into doing right. it though not openly yeah, I think that's perfect. Because my concern was that if it, if it really was, if they were just strictly doing it of their own volition, that it, it diminishes him as sort of the ultimate instigator. But I think I like your idea where you know, what you no, know, really showing is that he's actually really subtle. Yes, um, that, exactly. That he actually, yes, that he that that perhaps all along this is what he intended or wanted, but he's but he's working very very indirectly at this point so that. Nothing can be traced back to him, and ultimately, and really, this is sort of how he works all along, which is um, corrupting other beings and getting them to do his bidding and, and yes. dispersing his power and 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 um, um, potency into them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. Perfect. I love that. Um, and uh, many thanks to you guys who were discussing We're this on the discussion boards. Uh, I mean, I hadn't really thought of the fall of the Balrogs being associated with this, but it's a lovely idea. It's a perfect idea. Um, and uh, I mean, as soon as I was reading about that, I was like, well, this has to happen. But uh, um, but yeah, no, it's super cool. So thanks, thanks to everybody for for their ideas and suggestions there. Well, this we're actually threatening to end on time. Um, so let me um, just uh, for next time. Um, remember, so remember our next episode, our next film film episode is going to be in two weeks now, right? We're, we're back onto our regular schedule. So December 4th, uh, Friday, December 4th is the next episode. Um, we may, of course, as we said, have the, the Riddles in the Dark, uh, sort of reunion episode in between, but the next film film episode is going to be in two weeks. Um, the, uh, recommended reading for next session is, you'll never guess, chapter one of the Quenta. Not seriously, it is, we're still in chapter one of the Quenta for, <laughs> most for the several more episodes uh, however um i uh, uh, was requesting on the discussion boards like you know what extra reading could we be doing instead of just rereading that one chapter over and over again what i would recommend if you um you know as we're thinking you know in, into this this next section that we're coming into if you have a copy of the book of lost tales i would recommend reading chapter 3 of the volume 1 of the book of lost tales uh, that's the coming of the valar and the building of valinor um that that's really the perfect reading for what we're moving into um because in episode 7 after the destruction of the lamps we're going to we're going to have to you know th- this is when the valar decamp and establish valinor um, so that segues me into the questions for next time. There are really two questions for next time. Um, one specific and one quite broad. The specific question is, how should the relationship between Melkor and the Valar progress? Um, that is to say, we're going to have a bunch of episodes that are going to be Valinor-centric after this. But we don't want to lose sight of the overall thread, right? So how is Melkor going to be involved? How, you know, we need to be thinking about how, how we're going to be working that story. That, that overall plot line needs to be developing over the course of each of the episodes as we go through. Um, how is he going to be involved? So we need to be, we need to be thinking about that. What are they going to be thinking about him? What's the next stage? in the relationship, in how they look at Melkor? And we've already talked about some of that, some of the, the kind of debates 
maybe even we save Aryan's arrival uh, at them until the beginning of next episode. I kind of like that, actually. We see Aryan flee, and then we see the destruction and the emergence of the new Balrogs, and then Gothmog comes to Melkor and tells them what they've done, and uh, and uh, and and Melkor strokes his goatee as uh, Karita suggests and says, "Excellent." Um, and then we cut, and then we don't. We begin episode seven with Aryan's arrival um, to the Valar at the at the destruction and saying uh and 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 we have the debate there anyway what's the next step where do we go with the valar's uh relationship with melkor my second broader question is uh sort of a call for valinorian plot lines if you remember back to several months ago when we were doing the episode outline for season one the way we did it is we started working forward from the beginning and then we worked back from the end um and we were left with kind of a soft spot in the middle. That is, we knew we had to start with the Yana Lindale and, and, and work through the establishment and Melkor and the Void and up through the destruction of the lamps. Episodes one through six were comparatively easy to uh, outline when we did that. We also then, we, after we got to episode six, we worked back from the end and we, you know, we said, okay, you know, we know we want to do, um, we know we, you know, obviously we have to do the war to begin all wars. We need to do the Varda and the constellations and, you know, the prophecy of the birth of the firstborn that precipitates the war. We need to have Aule and the dwarves and Yavanna and the Ents and Eagles. And we were even talking about separating that into two episodes. I really wanted to do an episode on the rebellion of Ase. And Ase being called back yeah. to his allegiance. Um, so f- starting from the end of the season, we were working those back and we ended up with two episodes in between. <laughs> Having gone from the beginning to the destruction of the lamps and gone from the end backward through the destruction of Ase, we had two episodes in which we were like stuff in Valinor. Basically, the establishment of Valinor and something happening happening in Valinor. Well, beginning with the next episode, we have come to the first of our two episodes that are in that soft spot. Um, so what I would like to do, my thought is I would like to have episodes, sort of episodic incidents happening in Valinor, um, which are like in, in their scope similar to the Rebellion of Ase, um, Aule and the Dwarves, those kinds of moments, right? If there are other moments like that, other plot lines that we can think of that we could put into episode seven and eight, and then we can still do the, you know, we can still be maintaining the subplot of the, of the overall Melkor story and pushing that forward towards the end. But I would want there to be something happening, you know, the let's build Valinor and each build our individual domains. I mean, we don't want this episode to be like of Beleriand and its realms, right? So, (laughs) what what happens? Tim Mott is suggesting Lorien fanfic. Yeah, Tim, one of the benefits, one of the things that can really happen, one of the things that I think should really happen, and we've already begun doing it with Tolkis and with the Tolkis and Nessa example in episode five, this is how we can introduce the rest of the Valar. Rather than having them all be faces in a crowd and have to give dialogue to 50 different people in the big discussion council episodes, the way that we can really help people to embrace the character of all of these different valors, give them each an episode, right? So yeah, it would be awesome to have an episode in which we can introduce, uh, Lorian, Niena, and Mandos, basically. Have a, have a, have a, have a, a Feanturi episode, basically. Um, 
the the Ase one will be uh, will help us to introduce not only Ase and Uinen, but also more on Olmo, right, and on his nature and on his relationship with stuff. Um, the, obviously, we have Aule and Yavanna each get their own special episodes, and I think that Orame can also be kind of incorporated, or maybe we have a special Orame episode, or as I said, we can save Orame because we get him in season in the beginning of season two. He's the star of the beginning of season two with, with the discovery of the elves, so we can save Orame. Um, but so maybe think in those terms if people want to suggest some sort of episodic subplots that we can um uh that we can get uh in these next couple episodes Lydia Putnam suggests the seduction of Myron yeah um more on Sauron and the turning of Sauron um that I think could be involved uh that 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 seems to me like that would work um anyway think about it that's my next. So as a, that's my bigger general question. Really keen for suggestions uh, on on uh, on this point. Um, good homework. Yeah, good homework. So we can do some really. We can do some really, really good, nice um, uh, uh, like stories here. This is a good opportunity to dive in and do a little bit of innovation and um, yes. horribly abuse Tolkien, the source material. Yeah. 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 Um, one suggestion that I just thought of, which I want to enter into the record before I forget about it completely. Um, I had talked about the, I had, I had mentioned the Valar who don't make the cut between the Book of Lost Tales and the Silmarillion. That is Makar and Measa, the, the male and female Valar of, um, of warfare and fighting, basically. Um, you know, whose, whose, whose home, whose house, uh, whose halls in Valinor are basically like a gladiatorial arena, essentially. Mm. Um, and uh, we, we could... So I've raised the possibility already of actually having them there so they could kind of defect. Um, their very presence and their sort of defection to Melkor could be a kind of anticipation of or sort of a, another sign of the end that is coming. Um you know, in, uh, in, in season one, sort of pointing towards the end of season one. Anyway, that's, um, that's, that, 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 that they're another possibility there. Um, anyhow, yeah. Um, well, Karita, don't worry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Karita's, uh, saying that I'm, I'm inviting everybody to make suggestions instead of just bossing everybody around, which seems like I'm, I'm, I'm like vacating my position as, uh, as, uh, um, studio head, right? Shouldn't I just be dictating things from above? Well, no, uh, see, Karita, what happens no. is you make suggestions and I'm going to shoot them all down. So that, that's... Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah how, this, how this is how it actually works. We invite you to give feedback. You yeah. pour your heart and soul into it and then we disregard all of it. Exactly. You can't expect me to do all the creative work myself. You know, I, my job is my job is to crush the heart and souls of the creative people, not to, not to right. actually generate things. So, yeah. Uh, By the way... An alternative possibility for the for the war Valar is um, they, how about we 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 will just we'll introduce them and then kill them off in the destruction of lamps. The lamps collapse on them. <laughs> yeah, they're actually getting screen time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 just uh, counting the casualties at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right well i should let everybody go um but thanks very much everybody for uh for all of your wonderful suggestions and for a really fun episode and we look forward to moving on to valinor and uh <clears throat> seeing where we where we move from here so thanks for listening thanks for listening and godspeed <laughs>